Hi, everyone. It's John from the CCR here. If you look at the history of photography, it is a history of brilliance. We have the brilliance of the inventors of photography. We have the brilliance of people like George Eastman, who took photography and made it available to the masses. We have the brilliance of people at Nikon, Canon, Pentax, etc., who developed amazing cameras and amazing glass and made film photography the incredible experience that it is. But no one's perfect. And every now and then, we have to wonder, what were they thinking? Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto-Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. And we're back. Like the intro said, today we're covering mistakes, missteps, things that the photography industry and certain companies in particular probably, in hindsight, should not have done. Now, one thing we have to say uh, at the beginning of the episode is the name Kodak will come up from time to time. And to be fair, like we are not trying to pile on Kodak. It's just when you're a company that almost single-handedly at some points dominated the consumer film industry, you had more chances to get it wrong. And to be fair, most of the time, Kodak got it right and got it right brilliantly. But like any other company, any other people, they were not perfect. So they had their mistakes. But uh, we'll, to be fair, we will also try to cover mistakes made by some other companies. There are no sacred cows here tonight. So I'm going to lead off with something that Kodak did way back in the early 1930s, uh, a mistake, something I, I really wish they'd thought through a bit differently, however you want to define it. I want to talk about the uh, 620 film format. The general belief is that, uh, that Kodak was concerned that the 120 format, which goes back to, I think, 1901, 1902, something like that. Mm -hmm. They were concerned that it was getting all too popular, especially there were non-Kodak companies, the competition, making 120 film, and they wanted to do something about it. So they introduced 620. It's the same film stocks, the same negative size, the same backing paper, everything except the blankety-blankety-blank spool which made it unusable in uh, in a 120 camera. You couldn't you couldn't stick 120 film in most 620 cameras. Yes, there were some that uh, theoretically could handle both, but uh, I really wish they hadn't done that. I think today is when you know, as film shooters today, even more than the people back in like let's say the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, we're the ones who suffer for that uh, that decision because there are beautiful cameras out there that uh, that take 620 film. Like for example, the Kodak Metalist, one in my opinion, uh, one of the best cameras that uh, Kodak ever made in terms of the quality you can get. 
But if you have one today, you're either trying to find someone to drill out the film chamber to to make it uh, usable with 120 film. And I'm not, and just the thought of taking a classic camera like that and using a Dremel on it just sort of makes me break into a cold sweat. Or, <laughs> or you are respooling 120 to uh, to 620 cores, assuming that you've kept all your cores. And then if let's so let's say if you're shooting color film, you don't develop your own, and so you take it to your local camera store. You have to make sure you get your 620 spool back, and they might say they will, but stores are busy; they're forgetful. So I, I just think the 620 format introduced, I think, born out of cynicism, and really, it makes a lot of cam a lot of vintage cameras today harder to use than they should be. Absolutely, and um, speaking on the things that on cameras that can support both. I have a uh, Voigtlander Bessa folder, like again, one from the uh, from 36, if I've dated it correctly. Great camera, fantastic. The problem is it's designed to use both 120 film and 620. And it only seems to work the best when I have a 120 film in the source chamber and a 620 spool in the take up. Chamber. Oh, that oh. is so bad. Whoa. Because that's the big pro. That's in addition to this core of the uh, 620 spool being a smaller diameter, the keyholes are slightly smaller as well, and you're missing the flanges. Oh. Now, thankfully, um, Mike Rosso and the gang at the FPP produce new plastic, good quality 620 spools. It's just it's that extra layer of complexity that's added to yeah. it. And then you have to remember, if you're going to drop your 620 off at a, la at a lab, make sure you ask for your spools back. And pray but, that they give them to you. I mean, you know, it's so surprising because it, it's so unlike Kodak to, you know, do something out of greed, like just, you know, <laughs> re reinvent the format just to make a little bit more money. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm shocked. So I would say I. it's more and protecting market share. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's capitalism, you know, that's fair enough. It is. Yeah. I mean, Hey, corporations are there to make money. What are you going to do? Yep, exactly. And again, thinking about the source of Kodak and um, George Eastman's drive to really democratize photography, make it available to everyone. And then all of a sudden start making these decisions and 620 wasn't the only format they did it to. They did it to a ton of others. You got 116 and then 616, where they mm -hmm. pulled the exact same thing. And Yeah, they had a lot of that. really weird formats at one point. They did. They're the reason it's called 120 film. They started yeah. with 101 in like the 1890s, <laughs> 1895. Yeah. And then in 1901, you get 120. So 19 numbers later... You know, speaking of, of weird formats, another format that I wanted to mention was 828. <laughs> like, uh, yes. like 828, that makes 127 seem commonplace. <laughs> like this was a this was a roll film equivalent of uh was that 828, James? Wow. 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 Go to Chrome 2. Oh. Nice. So 8, 828 was a roll film equivalent 
for uh, 35 millimeter. Now, James, how many on that box you just held up, how many exposures does it have? Does it that's have the- good, That's a very good question. Eight Be exposures. Eight, yeah, because, uh, yeah, I think that's the name. So the thing is the, the image size, negative size was slightly larger than a 35 millimeter. Mm -hmm. Even though today, if you have an 828 camera and the backing paper, you can spool in 35 millimeter, but uh, only eight shots. And, and again, unless you want to uh, do some spooling and, uh, you know, deal with the sprockets, uh, people like sprockets, you get that Lomo look. Uh, it means there are cameras that are difficult to use. Like there's the 828 Pony, like the Pony came in 828 and 35 millimeter. But uh, I think one of the most, like I said, that the Kodak Metalist was one of the best cameras they ever made. Uh, the Kodak Bantam, the high-end Bantam with that Art Deco shell, mm -hmm. I think was one of the prettiest cameras that uh, Kodak ever made. But if you have one, unless you're prepared to, uh, to roll your own, it's a shelf queen. And I think yeah. that's a tragedy. Yeah, because Kodak produced so many different film formats, buying cameras that support currently produced formats can be difficult because the Pony came in either 35 millimeter or 828. So you might think you're buying a perfectly usable camera, but it comes and you're like, oh. <laughs> yep. So we, we may come back to Kodak, but uh, should we give them a, a break for a little while? And start and harshing on someone else. All you got to remember is yes, Kodak, they also have their moments. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I, I, I just love when you, I just love subverting marketing like that. <laughs> nice. I, it makes me happy as an old IT guy. Since... <laughs> Mamiya. Oh, oh, is that my, is it my Universal. Turn? Oh, oh yeah. Universal. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes. This, well, this yeah, whole so... line of these Mamiya cameras are just weird because it's like you want to give all these people who use 4x5 and these press cameras like, hey, look, we want to give you this, but it's going to take roll film, so you don't need to do all these things, and yet they build in all the same weak points of yep. a 4x5 camera. Like, you got to remove a dark slide, you got to cock the shutter, you could Da, 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 da. I will right. agree there. I, I love my RB67, my M645. The uh, C series TLRs are fantastic. Yep. You know, they make a lot of really, really great cameras, but the universal and press cameras, honestly, other than Polaroid peel apart, what? What are those yeah. cameras really all that good for? I mean, well, okay, on. that's Let's... my opinion, by the way, uh, <laughs> before anyone <laughs> starts attacking me, I just want you all to know that anything I say here is my opinion only. <laughs> but, but, you know, like they're, and they're really interesting, quirky, funky cameras with amazing lenses. Like the glass is fantastic. The fact that there are companies out there making other cameras, like 3D printed cameras that I can mount these lenses on i'm super excited about because i get to use that beautiful glass but otherwise mm -hmm. you know i've been wanting to buy one of those cameras for a long time because i'm like i'm a mumia girl i should have one i just can't do it i just can't do it <laughs> stick to your press pan so uh, so just next time I'm, I'm in montreal i'll just bring along my universal and give it to you oh. <laughs> because i've tried to sell it 
numerous times. From you, actually. You didn't leave it on the side of the road on garbage collection day, free to a good home. <laughs> and it stayed. Well, well, I put it out and I got a call from the city about violating a toxic waste rule. Listen, it makes it makes an excellent wheel chalk. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But but Jess raises a good point. Like when I when I got mine, the only reason I got it, this was back in the day when uh Fuji still made their uh their peel apart film. And so the one I have is with the uh the 127 millimeter lens that is uh full frame on the Fuji paper. Type 100, yeah. Yeah. And and the 3000. That was the only reason the camera's worth owning. And now that uh, a 10 pack of that uh, instant film is worth more than the camera. A lot more. <laughs> True. Yeah, I sold my uh, 600 SD with a whole whack of film to uh, Chris, Chrissy Wu. So she, she's having a little bit of fun with that. But I actually did a little bit of research on the, uh, on the Mamiya press system. So I'm going to, I don't know, maybe change your views, maybe not, maybe reinforce your views. But, you know, I guess the kind of best way to describe the Mamiya Universal or the Mamiya Press sort of chronology is it's kind of the antithesis of the progression of the flushing toilet, right? So Thomas Crapper invented the flushing toilet, wasn't very efficient. Alexander Cummings perfected it, and it's kind of been the longest-lasting, unchanged design today. We all, you know, kind of separates us from the animals, right? We can flush our poop down a, you know, we stopped throwing it in a bucket out the window in the 1800s. The Mamiya Press press camera, on the other hand, um, was not akin to the progression of the flushing toilet in fact it was the exact opposite and talking about kodak moments this is a what the f moment were you guys thinking you know so i think you kind of gotta you know look back you know a little bit you know back you know to the 1950s and you know before the 50s the common press camera was the four by five you know like you know the Linhoff, the Bush Pressman, of course, our good friends at, at Graflex. You know, that was the standard because film was shitty back then. It was nowhere near as the same quality as it is today. So newspapers, they wanted four by five, right? So, you know, Mamiya's brainchild in the late, they were in the 60s, was like, well, let's see if we can build a camera that's going to use a larger format film. They didn't make a large format camera. They said, let's go with roll film. Okay, that's cool. So first they invented the Mamiya press camera, which was okay, not bad. You know, it, it had a, you know, um, uh, uh, lots of different variations on it. Came with a 90 millimeter lens, an F3.5 lens with an M-type back on it. You know, kind of, okay, this could work. And then they said, okay, let's keep this thing going. And then they invented the Mamiya Super 23. Actually, if I would recommend, if you're going to get into the Mamiya Universal or Press lineup, stop at the Super 23. The Super 23 has a wide array of lenses available to it, from 50 millimeter all the way to 250 millimeter. Um, and the most popular kind of in the middle at the 100 millimeter or uh, 127 millimeter, if you're going to shoot portraits, really, really good uh, lenses and guess what 
It actually functions a little bit like a large format camera does because it has rear standard movements. Now you're not gonna get your rise and fall, but you're gonna get tilt and shift and that sort of thing. So with tilt and shift, of course, you can change the focal plane uh, of the film. Um, you know, you can't change perspective like you can with rise and fall, but you, you know, you certainly can um, make adjustments for architectural shooting and things like that. Uh, and your, you know, your vertical alignments and stuff like that. So really good camera. And the nice thing about the, those camera, the Super 23 anyway, is you could actually find, um, if you can find them today, they had the, um, the, the Mamiya K-back system for it, which was a universal back that would go all the way from 645 to 6 by 9 A lot of hard, a lot of difficulty finding them today because uh, not only do you have to find the back, you've got to find all of the inserts um, for the, not, for ju not just for the back, but also for the body as well. Now, here's where it kind of makes you go, what were you guys thinking? You know, you've already invented the flushing toilet. Why are you inventing the bucket again? You know, so then they came out with the Mamiya Universal and no rear standard movements, still the size of a brick, um, you know, and essentially the only advantage was you could throw in a Polaroid back and you know, put your Polaroid film in there, your pack film, you could use your, your Fuji FP100, FP3000B, et cetera, all the, you know, the Fuji instant films, which was great, but kind of a single purpose camera, not to mention the awkward you know, uh, ergonomics or lack thereof. I mean, this is really the anti-ergonomic camera. Um, and it's not like, you know, press cameras were actually easy to use, but if you could learn anything from shooting a press camera, it would be how to design something better. Uh, and I don't know what they were thinking. You know, they made a handle for it and then they put a, they made a cable release for that handle, but the cable release actually attached to the back and then hooked onto the lens. It was just, just a really, really weird setup. Now, that said, it's clunky, it's heavy, it's a boat anchor slash wheel chalk slash weapon of mass destruction for zombie apocalypse uh, scenarios. So, you know, uh, come the next dystopian adventure, which, you know, the 2024 is coming up, we could be in for another four years. Um, you know, this thing might actually come in handy. Um, but that said, on the bright side, the image quality of this camera is absolutely insane. I mean, you know, mm. it, it if you don't want to spend the money on a, on a Mamiya 6 or a Mamiya 7 and you're comfortable, you know, with a wheel case, you know, a wheeled case to carry your camera gear around and, you know, you're strong enough to carry a 20 pound tripod to shoot the thing. Um, you know, actually, I shouldn't say that you really don't need a tripod to shoot it. It's all leaf shutter. So it's actually there's no no mirror slap or anything like that. It's not a bad system from that perspective. Now, when I say it's not a bad system, I'm really referring to the Super 23. Don't bother with the universal. Don't bother with the early press cameras. Stick with the one in the middle. Stick with the middle child. In this case, the middle child is the best child, and that's a child you should go with. I think I'd add that it seemed Mamiya was trying to solve a problem that really sort of became moot with the introduction of the Nikon F in 1959. Absolutely. Yes. Well, the all 
you're absolutely they, right. They had moved on. But I say one good thing about the, one more advantage of the uh, of the universal that if you do use it as a weapon, if you tell the judge, "Look, I bought a universal," you can plead insanity. <laughs> you, you know, and and that, John, you raise an excellent point actually because it wasn't until after the 1950s where the Nikon F came to market and 35 millimeter, uh, the 135 format. Um, really took over the newspaper scene. It was compact. Film had uh, increased in quality by, you know, from pre-50s to post-1950s. So a lot of that um, uh, day-to-day press work was handled by 135. The reason why the Mamiya remained, the Mamiya press system remained popular was because of magazine work. Magazines wanted High re- higher resolution images that you could get from medium and larger format negatives. Uh, and uh, again, remember, black and white film had advanced or was further ahead of the game in the 50s than color film was. And of course, magazines wanting color, you know, you're going to want to stick with the larger negative. So, you know, maybe they were playing the market. Maybe it was more of a short term strategy that worked for them. If you're trying to think of the business reason behind why they did it. But you know, who knows? It's, it's one of those mysteries, but, um, you know, all in all, not a bad system, depending on how you look at it, you know? Well, I can yeah. concede on the image quality part. Like they, you know, Mamiya is known for their beautiful glass. So for that reason alone, I mean, I'll always recommend uh, Mamiya. My RB and, is my favorite, you know, so. And a lot of the glass they developed for the, uh, for the, Press, Press 23, and Universal, all those formulas went into the glass for the RB, RZ, exactly. 7 system. So. Absolutely. Yeah, like I don't think it wasn't until what uh, was the 70s that the RB67 came out, right? Yeah, uh, right. the first one came out, I think, in 1971. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I've always found, like, you know, as a wedding shooter, um, I, I never shot Mamiya um, as a wedding and portrait shooter because you want to know why the lenses were too sharp and too contrasty for people that didn't have absolutely perfect skin. Now for edit, fashion, editorial, magazine work where you've got makeup artists and, you know, uh, models mm. that, you know, essentially require very little airbrushing or you had the services of airbrushing back then. Um, remember there was no Photoshop in the, in the seventies and eighties. Um, you know, you could use that Mamiya glass, but I think, you know, for me, the everyday person shooting portraits with Mamiya, uh, and I'm not, I don't mean this disparagingly in any way. It's just the lenses are, the contrast on the lenses are so good that, um, uh, you know, sometimes portraits are too sharp. Yeah, I definitely found that I did a, I did a portrait shoot using um, my M645 and it was just way too sharp in the makeup, just wasn't there so the next time i used it i made sure that proper makeup was done yeah. and it and it looked and it open looked it up better. yeah open that f-stop up as wide as you can get a little softness if you can out of it and yeah yeah so we've talked about film we've talked about kodak we've talked about mamiya now it's time for some other people to join the party lenses and camera decisions that we loathe why don't we start off with uh, LCD displays, Bill? Thank you, John. I want to preface my little rant. I love my F3s. 
I love my F4s. I honestly think, now again, Nikon, when they introduced the F3 in fall of 1980, spring 81, the LCD uh, meter readout was real space age at the time. Because up until then, it was either an LED readout a la the Nikon FM in the F2AS, or it was match needle metering, metering. And let's be real, Nikon wanted to push the envelope a bit, even though they were quite a conservative company. They used the uh, same LCD meter readout in both the FA and the F3. Now the big Achilles heel in the F3, over time, moisture damage, the LCD readout doesn't bleed, it just fades away. And there's no fix. A repair tech of mine tried to fix one of my F3s and he tried his best. And it just comes down to it's an LC, it's a soldering connection between it and a, a, a printed circuit board. The circuit board is, well, they're getting on for 40 years old and they're kind of brittle and the best of 80s technology. So in the end, that particular F3 became a parts camera. And I wound up in F3AT. Yes, the LCD works just great. The F4, the F4 is a delightful beast. It's got everything you could ever want. You can use pre-AI lenses. You can use AFD lenses. You can use manual focus lenses. You got built-in diopter. You got everything. The problem is the LCD in both the upper and lower displays are prone to, prone to bleeding. Now, again, it was one of those, oh, yeah, there's a fix. Um, problem is, parts dried up years ago. And there is a fix for the lower LCD readout. You replace the prism head. Mm. Problem is, the prism heads, at some point, you're going to run out of decent prism heads. And the weird thing is, the F90X or N90S, if you live in the U.S., that uses LCD. It's fine. I think by then, Nikon figured out the durability angle. And from there on in, the, 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 the readouts are, 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 are solid. But it's just sort of the F3 and F4. You're just kind of like, sadly, there are a lot of cameras out there that otherwise would probably be great workhorses. But because the, the, the meter display is done, they've become parts cameras or shelf queens which is a shame and it really wasn't nikon it was just l lcd technology of the day yeah. i mean the minolta the um the maxim 7000 suffered the exact same fate especially on the external display the one 7000 and the one 5000 i have had um both of them suffered lcd bleed quite um the 5000 more than the 7000 um, the 5,000 eventually became completely unusable and the 7,000 decided to catch on fire. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, Hey, well, welcome, welcome to early eighties electronics. I know. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, but again, I preface, I also, you know, at the same point, I said, I love my F3s and F4s. They're amazing cameras. Hmm. I have never taken a bad shot in either of them. It's just, 
Nikon made an engineering decision at a certain point in time, just before the time, the technology they employed was. Well, I think, I think you got to see, it's easy to, and, and I'm not, I don't disagree with you, by the way, but I think it's easy when we look back at history from the technology that's available today. Than when we look at the early 80s. Now, the early 80s was kind of the onset, onset of integrated circuitry or like the, the larger proliferation of integrated circuitry. LCD screens were the, you know, the biggest and great and eventually kind of evolved into the Game Boy. Um, but it had to start somewhere. And a lot of it started with cameras. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I think... Nikon was probably at a crossroads uh, along with Canon as well saying, Hey, look, there's this new technology. We can make our, and Minolta, of course, we can make our, um, uh, our technology really cool. We can gain market share. We can, you know, it's mm -hmm. fancy and all that stuff, you know, and the eighties being what they are, you know, not only did we have really big hair and a lot of hairspray and acid wash denim, um, we also had the other thing that we're trying to never, ever remember in the film photography world, which is, of course, the 1982 infamous disc film. Uh, <laughs> no. And I'm not referring to disco that, you know, died in the 70s. And, you know, I'm talking about the disc film. And guess what? Kodak. Hey, they they just they were like, hey, man, first hits free. And then. You know, Minolta made a disc camera. Fuji made a disc camera. It was like, Oprah, I'll make a disc. Everybody make a disc camera. And, you know, we had 110 film back then. That was kind of the compact sort of rectangular um, brick or looked like an ice cream sandwich kind of camera in the 80s. With looked like a certain kind of sandwich, maybe not ice cream. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but, but, you know, you'd stick your flash bar on top. And then, of course, the disc camera came out which was pretty much kind of, you know, like the size of a four by five uh, sheet of film. Oh, um, they were slick looking cameras. They were really, really cool. And they were about 25% of the size of a 110 negative. So um, let's just say, you know, you want the world's crappiest images, um, you know, five shots at a time. Well, here, get yourself <laughs> a disc, uh, a yeah. disc camera don't want to go taking those negs and scanning them these days. It no. Just no. They hold, they had what, 15, 15 exposures and they were about 10 millimeters by eight millimeters um, mm -hmm. uh, in size. So uh, yeah, I mean, that's just a recipe for a bowl of Cheerios with it, or a bowl of cornflakes with every shot, you know, get your grain every morning because that's what that camera is going to give you. I would say that there, there one difference between disco and disc is today. There are still some people who say that disco doesn't suck. <laughs> I don't think anyone, I don't think disc has too many fans today. No. I want to go back to like the, the F4 I've had F4 bleed as well. So it gets, it's a real shame when, like when Bill puts it, otherwise amazing cameras and the F4 is mm -hmm. an amazing camera to have their future sabotaged by one part. I remember like I'm old enough. I remember when handheld portable calculators were a big deal. And when I first got mine, the, um, uh, 
the numbers were like the LED, like the red, uh, the red lights. Oh, the bubble display. Exactly. But then the LCD came in and it was all popular and sexy. So I'm wondering if the F3 and F4 were basically sabotaged by, in essence, a marketing decision, which just makes me worse. I would not be surprised. Like I, I have a feeling Nikon, even though they're kind of conservative with their product choices they generally like to over engineer the heck out of their cameras but i think in the case of the the lcd display and again it's like like i said there are only so many dp20 prism heads out there that are decent so mm. i got lucky a year ago and i managed to resuscitate an f an f4 but yeah at some yeah. point unless there's some mad some madman out there with uh who can reverse engineer something and i wouldn't hold my breath on that well, one i'm, I'm afraid. not uh you know uh again there's much to be said for the nikon f2 it's about as mechanical as it gets but the, you know but matrix metering <laughs> So, yeah. Alex, I think that you want to talk about a lens that, shall we say, has some elements of failure in it. <laughs> so, it's I've I've recently started exploring the Canon EOS system. The cameras are great. Um, universal compatibility of lenses. You can use an original 1987 lens on the most recent EF mount DSLR and pretty much vice versa but some of their consumer um level slrs from the late 90s early 2000s had some interesting lenses and there are some good ones like there's a good 28 to 80 but then there's the 38 to 76 it's kind of like canon thought hey you know what we're going to take a lens off of our point and shoots and we're going to put it in the EF mount. <laughs> and the thing is, is that at the 38 millimeter end, you get a lot of barrel distortion, a lot closer to the, a lot further away from the subject than you'd expect. Whereas the 28 to 80, even at the 28 millimeter mark, there is no barrel distortion. And it's like a, at 38, you got an f4.5, and at 76, you got f5.6. So it makes absolutely no sense as a lens. And, the and like, again, 38 millimeters, like, leave that for the point shoes, people. That's what they're there for. <laughs> um, but, again, and the fact that they did this in the 90s and the 2000s. Were they hitting they, a price point with that lens? You know what? I don't know. I got like, it you know, bundle it with Ross like a, a Rebel, a Canon's Rebel something or other for that's exactly what, That's exactly what they did. Mine came with an EOS 3000, and the camera itself is fantastic as a compact SLR, but the lens just makes no sense. And this isn't the first time that we've seen this. Nikon no. did the what is it? Forty-three millimeter. Forty-three to eighty-six. Oh yeah, the forty-three yeah. to eighty-six f. Yeah, yeesh. You you really wonder. And again, please, if you're listening to this and you understand why Canon and Nikon did this, like, 
please, by all means, chime in, leave a comment, send us an email, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, because it makes no sense to us. Like, really, what were they thinking with these really weird focal lengths and like the yeah. 40, the Nikon one wasn't that bad, if I recall. Oh, no, no, no. It, it was bad. It was bad. I heard okay. the first version of the 4386 yeah. was a total dog. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. The only reason they existed because Nikon wanted a zoom lens because zoom lenses, third-party lenses were starting to come out with yeah. third-party mm. lens companies were coming out with zoom lenses. And it's like Nikon took one look at that going, yeah, I want a piece of that action. So they came yeah. out with a telephoto lens, which is great. The 80 to 200 F mm. 4.5. Yeah, decent. Sounds that's, about a great right. gla- that's a great lens. That's great glass. The 4386, I think they wanted to he- sort of market it for people who, you know, bought their knicker mat. They're going on package tours. They didn't want to lug all their lenses with them. So there you go. We got one for everything. Yeah. yeah. And what a weird... Was- uh, what a weird focal length range 43 to 86 so like yeah i mean i i had one uh in high school and i remember the flare the the barrel distortion like it was mm. i mean it was terrible man uh you know and hey look you know what uh 20 years later they followed it up with the friggin' 35 to 70 um uh uh variable uh what the hell it was i think it went up to uh it was either 2.8 or 3.2 or something weird to like uh, f4.5. It was an AIS lens, the 35 to 70. I don't think they ever made a sharp copy of that lens. No. Now, I think from what I understand, like there were later variants of the 1486 that got acceptable, but the damage was done. It's like for the same reason, like Ford never reused the name Edsel. Yeah, like the, the the or pinto yeah the uh the stench of that first 43 to 86 is permanent yeah yep. the odd thing i have an ais 35 to 105 which i've been using this winter i love the results from it and it's surprisingly a good lens i didn't say an amazing lens it's a good lens I think they kind of figured it out by then. Um, they're yeah. not that expensive. And no, what's I, a real what's a real shame is that you know, for probably less money, I don't know what the price was, but I'm sure for less money than a 43 to 86 uh, crapola zoom lens, the user could have gotten a uh, a 50 millimeter f2, which was just one of the sharpest lenses. Yes. Nikon ever did most amazing lenses and probably got and and saved money. That's the ironic thing about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think they just they just wanted a zoom lens and they threw whatever they could. Yeah, I I don't know. That's it. Yeah. I I I guess that's it. They were late to the party and uh when it came in through the back door, literally. Yeah. Tourists loved it. I guess. Hmm. Well, I guess, yeah. I mean, maybe it catered to the um, amateur, you know, I don't want to even, I, I don't even want to use the word amateur because that's insulting to amateurs. Um, <laughs> I'd say I the, casual, the casual shooter that's 
not in it for the hobby. They're just documenting their vacation. Yeah, or, you know. Or like the trip of a lifetime doctors. back in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. You know, people that wanted the latest and greatest. I think it was more a gadget more than anything mm, at yeah. the time. Yeah. Maybe or they the just ones. had a gap in, in releases or something too. Maybe mm. they didn't quite have the technology or they were working on something else. Because yeah. I know at one point, like back in the late 50s, early 60s, around the time that the Nikon F was coming out, the Spotmatic was coming out, the Topcon released uh, the RE Super, they were all competing. And so they were kind of like each company was kind of rushing certain things in the meanwhile that they were still working on the technology like Canon took a long time to catch up to the technology that those guys had. It took them until the seventies to do that. So I don't know if maybe there was just a little gap as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not as familiar with all these, with all the lenses, like the, the, the timeline say of yeah. when the lenses came out and stuff. So maybe it was to get money for the next great big lens they were going to release or like the technology, sure. like the research into it. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. I think- that, that I don't think is too far off target, you know? And I mean, I, I will say though, I think we should add that the, it's the first, like John, as John mentioned, just to be clear to people, and we don't want people throwing away their glass. Um, it was the first version of the 43 to 86 that was utter garbage. So um, that's the lens produced prior to 1975. Um, the yeah. later version that was produced from 75 to 82 is a completely different piece of glass um uh and it has to the you you the way you um uh denote the 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 difference between the two of them is the newer one has the lettering uh, on the uh outside of the filter ring um so uh if your lettering is not outside of the filter ring um you have the well weapon of you know, zombie apocalypse destruction. Weapon of glass destruction. But I'd but say the that I think- cool thing is with that early version of the um, of the uh, forty three to eighty six is that if you get it with the lens hood, you have a nice cheap lens hood that will work on any of your thirty five millimeter primes, the f two point eight and the f two. That's how I ended up with two two of those lens hoods for almost nothing because I got them on these garbage pieces garbage lenses so always a plus yeah i was going to say maybe another way to tell the two versions of the lens apart is the older one has a bent filter ring from when the owner threw it against the wall (laughs) (laughs) yes 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 or or many many tears yeah Mm. (laughs) exactly so do we have any other items to cover for mistakes we, we, we have to end it off with yeah. uh, a little bit of a dig uh, against our good friend, Mike Gutterman and the Negative Positive Podcast. And that would be APS. APS. <laughs> oh, APS. Yeah. Why? Yeah. <laughs> APS was designed to really fill that gap that was left when 126 and 110 film went bye-bye. The yeah. idea was you wanted a simple use film stock that was drop in loading that allowed people to you know be able to do mid roll that's absolutely fantastic um but the problem was is that it was too little too late you already had um consumer grade digital cameras on the horizon 
that were starting to become affordable and the fact that all of a sudden all these labs had to suddenly buy all brand new equipment. Yeah. I think that was the worst thing because it was sort of like, it was an answer to a question that nobody really asked outside of, I guess, Kodak. Yeah. Well, they asked it again. It was, you know, 620 2.0. Yeah, pretty much. And, and then again, you're probably, you've got all these lab owners like, on the phone to Naritsu and Frontiers, you know, screaming, how can we get this, my current machinery to accept APS or, or if there's a workaround kit, if such a, if such technology existed, I really don't know how it all works with Frontiers and Naritsu machines, but I assume it was just sort of like you ordered it from the factory, just 35 and 120. The thing is, is when I was a kid in the nineties, or teenager, um, it was like the coolest thing. I'm sorry, but it really was like for a oh, point the- and shoot camera, which was what I used back then. Cause you know, my parents wanted me to have something dummy proof that I couldn't screw up. <laughs> so it was a point and shoot, um, but they were really cool. The fact that you could just drop the film in, load it away. You go, they had panoramic mode, all kinds of yep. little funky bells and whistles. They weren't cheap necessarily, which is why I never actually got one. But they were they were super cool. I remember being really jealous of my friends who had them. Now, now I laugh at myself, but it was pretty cool at the time. You have to admit the uh, SLRs that used APS films, like the um, um, the Nikon ones and the Minolta the ones, Kernia. were pretty yeah. Yeah. cool. And out of it, we got uh, crop sensor uh, DSLRs, which I'm sure yeah. a lot of us. When we got our first DSLRs, it was crop mm-hmm. sensor. So, yep. APSD, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. I think another neat feature was when you got your film back, like you, you get the little contact sheet. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I thought that was a very good idea. But again, like the real crime, sort of like the 828 cameras and the 620 cameras, uh, is now we have all these perfectly usable, in some cases, very, very nice cameras that are impossible to use. And they're shelf queens. And that's the real tragedy with this. Yeah. 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 Very true. Mm. It's it's always a shame to not be able to use a camera. Like, yes, whether it's, you know, the film's obsolete or it just doesn't work anymore or whatever reason you don't shoot it. It's always sad. Mm. Yeah. At that right. Sorry. I feel like I kind of took this on a bit of a bummer end there (laughs) well that is perfectly fine because we do have some sad news to end off this episode if you've been listening to ccr since the beginning you'll know that one of the solid voices that has been there since the beginning was mr john meadows in fact when i first got the concept of ccr the first person i wanted on the team was john meadows mainly because he had podcasting experience. He had his own photography podcast for a while. And he has done a lot of work for us from behind the scenes. He has edited and produced a majority of our episodes. He has always been quick, fast, efficient, and extremely professional. And today we are saying goodbye. Um. This will be John's final episode. We will definitely make sure that we bring him back every so often for um, special guest appearances, but he will be no longer a regular. 
And that is truly unfortunate. But the nice thing is, this is the first time that someone's leaving CCR without any background drama. So that's a. Well, he's not getting kicked out. Yeah. No. We're not erasing you from history. (laughs) Yeah. Retired, not fired. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, John, you have been a huge, huge part of this podcast from the beginning. You will be seriously missed. And as I've mentioned before, you are the first friend of the podcast. Um, and that title comes with all its perks, which basically means you get to keep being a part of the group chat and maintain moderatorship of uh, the Toronto Film Shooters Group. Well, thanks, Alex. It's been uh, an amazing run, and I've had uh, had a lot of fun. Um, made made you know friends who will you know that I met my involvement with the show may be you know not completely over, but you know almost you know pretty much done but the friendships i hope will uh will continue uh it just you know i'm not for various reasons i'm not shooting as much film these days so i think it was just time to uh to move on i think you know the show is in uh is in excellent hands you know i think we're one of the uh we have a solid track record and it's it's amazing i was at uh, podcamp toronto last weekend which was a uh a podcasting meetup and I was telling a couple of people for something, a subject matter that is so people think is niche film photography is that there are so many film podcasts. There's, there's certainly more now than there were when we started ours. And I like to think that perhaps the success of our show helped has helped the whole space in general. So I'm, I'm very proud to have been involved in, uh, in that. And uh, I will still definitely be a listener, but thank you all. Well, now I'm going to have to get good at puns. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is well, one thing is that... one ever good at puns? Oh, that that's, Interest- that's like, that's, that's like, Oh, someone's really good at explosive diarrhea. You know, do you really want skill in that area? <laughs> Why do we keep comparing everything to poop tonight, guys? Well, we did start the episode with the Thomas Crapper and Alexander Cummings yeah. record. So, I mean, we might we started on a real shitty topic. We might as well end on one. We're starting a movement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I just can't do that. Uh. Uh, are, are we ready for our outros? Is that I think it's out. I think it's outro time. Is it outro Absolutely. time? Absolutely. Oh, well, folks, it's been it's been a real great episode. We haven't done one of these um, for a while, and that's one of the best things about film photography is that you can do whatever you want with it. And you know what? If you want to shoot obsolete, weird lenses and films, you just go for it, and you do it without shame. You don't have to listen to us ramble. You don't have to take our opinions on anything. So my name's Alex Lokes. Get out there, stay safe. Make something awesome happen with whatever crappy film or lens you have. Well said. And uh, John, just a few words. Um, You are a a real true friend in every sense of the word. 
I have learned so much from you. You have been um, often the voice of reason on this podcast and balance. Um, you have, um, you may not realize um, uh, how many people's uh, lives you've made better with your insights and your comments. Um, you certainly have done that for me. I have learned how to be a better podcaster because of you. I've learned to see photography differently because of you in a good way. Uh, you've taught me what a, what a true friendship is. Um, you will be missed, but only on the podcast um, because there will be lots of photo walks and lots of consumption of barley sandwiches uh, in our future. Um, and uh, I think I, I, I can safely speak on everyone's behalf. You are welcome back here anytime you see fit. And, um, and we can only look forward to those episodes because they will be uh, a lot of fun. And um, although I, I've only been on this podcast for, I think, three or four years or something like that, you've made every single one of those years absolutely fun. And I will, I will miss you um, on, this, uh, on this podcast um, uh, uh, for a long, long time. And uh, with that said, uh, hey, this is James Lee. You know what? Uh, you never know. Today's trash, tomorrow's Lomo. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's Bill Smith. Uh, John, thank you for being a podcasting mentor. And again, uh, yeah, just being an amazing friend, both within the, the confines of CCR and outside. And again, uh, I'm going to echo both Alex and James. Yeah, you will be missed, but again, you're also welcome back anytime. Thank you. Well, I don't know if I can add anything that anyone hasn't said at this point tonight, but John, I really enjoyed this time together. I've only been on the podcast for, I don't know what, like a year and a half, maybe two years, two years. Wow. Two years. Oh, okay. Time, time, flies. time, time flies. But anyways, um, I really enjoyed this time. That we had together, that I have been able to learn from you, and I consider you such a good friend of mine, and I will miss you very, very much on the podcast. And to everyone else, this is Jess Hobbs. Just go out and shoot whatever it is with whatever it is, just create awesome photos and share them with the world. Because if you do that, the world will be a better place. Oh, thanks. Thanks again, everyone. And uh, um, thanks again to the hosts for, you know, we're a family and that won't change. Uh, and now uh, if you're hoping for one last scatological pun, so I think that that ship has sailed. I want to say something a bit different uh, to everyone who listens, to everyone who loves uh, photography. Uh, one of my favorite sayings is uh, by a uh, American, I think it's 19th century, and he said, alas for those that never sing, but die with all their music in them. He was talking about music as a, uh, as a metaphor for people who had capabilities within them to be creative, but for whatever reason, never ever acted on their abilities and 
and departed this life without having done anything creative. That's a real shame. And whether it's about music or or dance or theater or creative writing or indeed photography, whether it's film or digital, I think that we as, as humans, as a species, we are never more human than when we are creating things, whether it's dance or art or writing or music or heck, even new life. If we do it with love and passion, that is what makes us special as a species and special as people. So however you shoot, whatever gear you use, whatever film you use, keep shooting, keep being creative, keep doing it with love and keep being human. Thank you, everyone.